Yes, it's fourth estate for the week beginning Monday the 7th of December. My name's Jack Fisher and tonight, 10 years since the Cronulla riots put race relations on front pages around Australia, we'll look back at the role the media played at the time and where the discussion is 10 years on. Also on the show tonight, Liberal Senator Erica Betts is taking shots at the ABC. We'll find out what that's about. And as the US media tramples around the house of the California shooters, is there any line the media won't cross for a good scoop? Well, joining me on the line tonight to discuss these topics, we have Yasir Morsi, columnist with The Guardian Australia. Hi, Yasir. Hi. Also photojournalist with the Sydney Morning Herald, Nick Moyer. Thanks for joining us, Nick. G'day. And you might not have heard her on Fourth Estate, but she's always watching over us in spirit, and she joins us tonight, our very own managing director of 2SER, Melanie Withnell. Hi, Mel. Hi, Jack. Well, this Friday will mark 10 years since rioters gathered on Cronulla Beach to violently protest against Lebanese Australians in the Shire. Photos from that day showed men of Middle Eastern appearance being attacked, and revenge attacks kept the issue in the spotlight for weeks on end. And not only did the Australian media cover this event, it also became the story. Most notably, 2GB host Alan Jones, who landed in a whole lot of trouble for statements he made in the lead-up to the riots and for taking callers who encouraged violence towards Lebanese Australians. Nick, you were right in the thick of the riots on that day. Can you take us back to what it was like? Yeah, well, I I have to say at the time, I hadn't been paying much attention to what had happened the week before. It had sort of snuck up on me and I happened to be on shift on that day that it all went down. But when I turned up, it would have been mid-morning, uh, and it was very, very strange. I turned up, and, and there are hundreds of, of teenagers and young men, and at that same, they, they all seemed, you know, they, like in some ways that they'd already achieved what they set out to do, which was just be on the beach and drinking beer um, or along the, the, the palisade there. But um, the thing that was a bit... Uh, distressing at the time, I guess, uh, before the violence happened, was there were a few elements in there that you could tell were from the hard far right. And they had um, walkie-talkies and they were, you could tell that they were organising little groups amongst themselves and and, and talking to and, and revving up some of the young, uh, the young men there. Um, then more and more alcohol got in and it was a warm day. There wasn't a lot of police presence at the time. I think they were just going to let it um, fizzle out, I, I think. They thought it might have been a big party. I'm not really sure. However, um, uh, all of a sudden there were a number of – the first attack happened further away from me. Over, I think it was over in front of um, – in, in the park. And there was another – I heard another story about a, a couple of girls with hijabs on having them ripped off. And then in front of me and a number of other photographers, a guy suddenly ran out of a, a, a building um, and with youths chasing after him, um, when I say youths, um, 16, 17, 18, into their 20s, and he tried to take refuge behind a, a, a ute and then he just got surrounded and he was being, it was the famous shot by Andrew Mears. He was uh, being pounded with bottles um, and, and hit really badly with with bottles and stuff like that. Um, then the pol- a couple of the cops really th- threw themselves into it and um, they grabbed him out. Now throwing bottles at the police, they're throwing bottles at the ambulance. There, um, it, it really started to get mean then, um, and and it was. It's uh, I've seen protests get ugly and it's when they become disorganised and I've been out at the, at the Macquarie Fields riots and th- that was ugly but there was a point kind of being made, They their target was usually the police 
this was very disorganized so it could be started by anything it was it was really was like um uh watching a sheep you know a dog running in amongst the sheep and then they'd suddenly people would scatter and then anything could start something off and then um uh, uh, just a text window all around to everybody and and phone calls that um there were two guys coming in on a train um into the Cronulla station and they were lebanese um and so and it was it was one of the most humiliating things for me on the day was like hundreds of youths running up from where we were down at the um at the surf's lifesaving club up through the mall up to the Cronulla station and it's just humiliating running along with these people when i couldn't stand them i thought they were complete morons and um and then they got to the actual train station and they're looking around and there's a couple of guys wander out of the train and everybody's sort of looking at one another and suddenly punches are starting to be thrown. These guys don't know what's happened to them. They went and tried to take refuge on the train. Uh, another photographer, Craig Greenhill from the telly and I were both there and we we sort of um, we were sort of unsure what, what was going to happen. We sort of jumped in in front and we kind of actually were concerned about was it going to go. We sort of stood in front of some of these people where they sort of pushed us out of the way. I got pushed to the side. Craig went, got down to where these guys took refuge and he got shots of these guys being pummeled. Then Craig himself um, tried to get in front of these guys to, to stop them being attacked. Then the police came in and cleared the carriage. So I guess, look, that's um, a very brief um, outline of, of the action. But it, it, it was... It just reminded me of the entire time. The entire day to me was just dumb. <laughs> I just can't think of any other word. It was my most embarrassing, humiliating day as an Australian. If you're going to go and protect surf lifesavers, going and beating up people who have absolutely nothing to do with it is not the way to achieve it. And uh, one of the great points on the day was there were a number of the surf lifesavers up in the club were screaming down at the crowd that you guys should be a bloody ashamed of yourselves. What do you think you're doing here? You're, you're, you're embarrassing yourselves and Cronulla. So anyway, and that sort of um, really, uh, I guess that's just a brief outline of, of what it was like. Indeed. Uh, safety training for journalists, I think, often makes a point of distinguishing between a crowd and a mob. And I think that goes a bit to what you were saying earlier about whether it's a centralised sort of organised group of people or not. Is that a distinction that you're often aware of in the field? Yes, though it wasn't so much a problem on this day. The media weren't a target. Um, I mean, there were a few bottles being thrown around. Um, if you engaged in an argument with one or two people, um, which quite a few of the media did, um, it, it actually ended up settling down some of those people. But it was those real hard right guys um, that were were the danger. Um, no, the, the real... The only danger for I really felt for media on that day was um, was from uh, the was from bottles being thrown uh, or getting in the road of the police once things happened. It's tended to have been at um, uh, some other events like Macquarie Fields. That's when I, I had a crowd turn on me and saw me as uh, as a target. 
And uh, there's quite a few injuries um, back in the 90s um, during some of the uh, NATO attacks on um, on Serbia. Um, there were a number of uh, protests in Sydney and there were some, some injuries against the media then when the media themselves are seeing as being particularly involved. But on that day, they weren't seen as targets. Yeah. Melanie, we know what a big role Talkback Radio played on that day. You were an executive producer with 2UE back when the riots happened. What was that like? Well, it was really interesting because my experience was so different to Nick's. I was in the studio, um, but coming in to work on the Monday. So all the stuff, the, both the two weeks, because there'd been a, the, the initial thing that sort of set it all off on the weekend, and then obviously the big day that Nick was talking about. So we came in and were just dealing with the coverage. I think I was at night the first week and basically, you know, there was stuff happening in Cronulla. So we had reporters out there and we were trying to cover it. And I think the decision that we made as a program um, was that we were going to cover it as a story and not kind of feed into this because there'd been a real anti-Muslim and anti-Lebanese um, thread for a couple of years through callers. You know, there'd been a few instances and people would, you know, Chappelle Corby was one of them. There was a few different things where people were just anti-Muslim and quite racist. And I think in terms of the callers that we were trying to get on our program, we always tried to shy away from that. And um, and when it came to cover the riots, I think we were covering it more from the perspective of these were just stupid people, <laughs> you know, and it was embarrassing. And, you know, why were people acting out and being ridiculous and that everyone, you know, sort of should be able to go to the beach? Um, the announcer I worked with at the time was Stan Zamanik and he was from a migrant background, so he was quite aware of the fact that, you know, we didn't need to be inflaming the situation further through the show. Um, but in saying that, people did want to use the talkback radio as the platform to, you know, get people to be further involved. And I think um, the stuff that happened on 2GB on Alan Jones's program sort of showed how that was used because really it was, it was where people went to vent. So if people were angry and they wanted to you know, have their say that's they do call Talkback Radio, then there was, you know, no Twitter and no comment sections on websites really developed in the same way. So there was a real kind of a right element that would ring in and be um, be quite racist towards other people. But also in saying that, we also had callers, I remember, ringing in who um, were from Cronulla, who were from the Shire or who, you know, did not approve of what was happening. And so we sort of did see a real cross-section of society, and particularly, I think the people we chose to talk to, like we spoke to a lot of community leaders, calling for calm, both from both sides, um, you know, to try and make sure that we diffuse, that we weren't adding to the situation. You know, we wanted to cover it as a story because it was a huge story at the time, but we didn't want to make it any worse. Yes, yeah, Sarah, I'll come to you here because. 2GB perhaps notwithstanding, a lot of the media has uh, has called this an embarrassing day for Australia, a day of shame. And now 10 years on, is there more to be said about it? Have we have we really properly addressed it in, in calling it an embarrassment and a day of shame? Or is there perhaps something a little bit deeper that we haven't properly addressed? Well, it is, I guess, embarrassing. Um, but, you know, the overall war and terror narrative and the kind of anti-Muslim sentiment that Melanie was touching upon has allowed us to say a lot of things that normally cannot be said about minority groups uh, who live in Australia. Um, there's always this assumption, especially from the right, um, that we're countering this political correctness that is preventing 
um, us from properly criticizing the threat that is Islam and Muslims. And the war on terror has framed that. So this, this I mean, the ten, it has always simmered. But what Cronulla showed us is that it, you know, it overblown to the extent where violence became um, both a real uh, threat to the community in Cronulla, but also as a representation, an analogy, if you want, about the relationship between Muslim Arabs and non-Muslim Australians. In that sense, I don't think we have addressed, to answer your question, the underlying intentions about how we speak about Islam, how we speak about Muslims, how we speak about religion, and how we can speak about it within the framework of a war on terror and narrative. And you know, today, with all these events that are happening overseas, it seems to be getting worse. What I can say is that studying this topic, writing about this topic, and enduring this topic as a Muslim Australian, it does seem to be getting worse. Um, perhaps there are less chronolas, um, but that seems to be the case because racism finds multiple ways to articulate itself. And I could be grateful for that, but um, I don't think we've addressed underlining causes that create these tensions. And looking back on Cronulla, you know, it's easy to say, well, it was 10 years ago, but I, I would ask a question to all of you, has it got better? Will, will there be another set of rights? Um, and that's a question I think that we have to engage in. It's become increasingly difficult to talk about Muslims in Australia with all that's happening in the world. Alan Jones is still on the air. He was found by media watchdog ACMA to have likely encouraged violence or brutality towards people of Lebanese or Middle Eastern backgrounds. And he famously, or I should say infamously, called them, among other things, vermin who rape and pillage a nation that's taken them in. Now, he was forced to make an on-air apology for that. Well, what do you make of the fact that 10 years on, he's still on the air? Yeah, I go back to my point. Look, it is, it, it's, e- it's easier. It's not easy. It's easier to say these things about Muslims than any other group. And that's because of the political context we're in. The fact that he can get away with it in the sense that he can still keep his job, still 10 years on, um, speaks both of the power of uh, right-wing spokespeople um, and also the fact that his indignation and anger and saying it as it is has a market. And so many people have accused society in general of not being able, which I find fascinating, not being able to speak about Muslims because there's a political correctness out there. So yeah, it is disappointing. It is embarrassing. I don't think it can be said about any any group, and nor should it be said. And I think um, if we were honest about the racism that um, we endure, then we would recognize that these statements have no place. Apology is welcomed at one level, but I think in any other circumstance, anyone who says such things should lose their work. But as I said, it has to be for me framed in the context where saying these things about Muslims and Arabs in the overall context that we're dealing with has become a lot easier. And that's what's scary and worrying. Melanie, that apology of, of Alan Jones's, some people might have heard it. Probably no one noticed it as much as they noticed the 2013 boycott of Alan Jones over his comments died of shame about Julia Gillard. Do you think um, ACMA is a bit of a toothless tiger because of this? Well, I think, you know, the way that it works in that situation, because there was also the parliamentary inquiry that came afterwards as well. So I think the thing with with Alan is, as Missy was saying, there is a market for what he does. And and for 2GB to step in and sack him, you know, there, you know, would be unfortunately making a commercial decision not based on that. And the thing that always stands out to me was there was another announcer, Malcolm T. Elliott, who lost his job over some racist comments. Um, from 2GB, which um, was about Indonesians and the judges in the the Corby trial particularly, and and there were very racist comments as well. 
not inciting violence, but you can see the difference that the two announcers are treated. And I think, you know, ACMA's role, in a way, is to to find that ruling, but then it's back to the licensee to take to take some action. And I know 2GB did, after this whole incident, institute a big training program um, to try and say, you know, what was acceptable and what wasn't, and that sort of filtered out through the industry. But from my perspective, and those comments should never have been made, I think that's a, it was a blatant breach of the code of practice right from the start, but also from community standards and... You know, it's not something that you should be saying about another group of people. You're on Fourth Estate. I'm Jack Fisher, and I'm speaking to Nick Moyer, Yassir Morsi, and Melanie Withnall. Well, last week, America faced a shooting attack in San Bernardino, California, leaving 14 people dead and many more injured. It's since been confirmed to have been a terror attack. According to reports, the shooters had pledged allegiance to the Islamic State group. But a spectacle played out last Friday when media were given rare access to the shooters' apartments, going through their personal belongings and searching all around for clues about their life together. It was their landlord's decision to allow news reporters into the couple's home, and of course this provoked outrage over social media, but legal and media experts say they broke no laws. Was it right for the reporters to go into the apartment? Nick? Ah, Jesus. Look, um, I have been... After the police are well and done, I've been invited in in an exclusive way by uh, either a landlord or a family member. But it tends to be a very exclusive thing and well and truly when the police have done their, their job. Now, I, I, I don't know. Um, have they definitely done their job there? It certainly looked like there was a lot of evidence. Um, I think it was more the fact that it looked like it was <laughs> almost a, a mob in there, uh, everybody running around picking things up. Um, they were, I'm not sure, have there been charges laid against anybody there? Um, surely all of that stuff would have been, should have been picked up by the police. Um, I think it was embarrassing, just, yeah, the way that it was being conducted by the media. Having said that, yeah, I, I have gone into a house after um, a crime, uh, uh, but it was legal, um, but it, it just wasn't conducted in such a circus i guess melanie for the reporters who were on the san bernardino shooting story would they have been given much choice about whether to go into the home look some i mean when i saw it i thought it was absolutely appalling but it just reminded me of those times where you do feel like you have to go in and do something because everyone else is doing it and it's the story and if you miss it you'll get in trouble or all those kinds of things um i always sort of tried to you know, do what I felt that I could live with. But, you know, we've all been caught up in the story where we've, you know, had to call a family or go in. I know of people who've gone into houses and, you know, stolen photos off a mantelpiece so that it will get in the paper because their job's on the line if they don't. Um, But, yeah, I think there might have been a bit of that. But also, are we just... You know, as Nick was saying, usually you go in and it's one-on-one and it's much more controlled. But are we at the point where... The news cycle has got to the extent that it's such a frenzy that this is actually what happens, that people just go, I need anything, I need something on these people, I need to get in there and I just need to rifle through their stuff to find something that I can make my mark because it's such a crowded landscape. That's sort of what I I did think about it in a way. I don't think it would actually... Having been through quite a few, you know, vaguely similar type of events in Australia, generally... um, the media are much more. I guess it's just 
not so much not as competitive. We would uh, generally talk around each other. It's like, okay, we'll have a pool photographer and a pool cameraman, and we'll go in there and do it yeah. in a calm, measured manner. Um, that, but you know, everybody, um, all the reporters and photographers will be absolutely triple checking that. Um, all the evidence has been gathered. We'll be checking with the police whether or not, yes, can we go in here? Even if the, the owners say, yes, you can, we'll be checking with the police, is this, this okay? Um, I, I think if you saw something like that happening in Australia, then there would be some big <laughs> – there would be a lot of questions asked. And I think it was just – yeah, it's a great example of the kind of the frenzy that's occurring over in the US. I'm sorry, all I was going to say, just following up on what you said, Nick, is – if it is terrorism, as they've been calling it, you know, I can't imagine anyone in Australia being led in so quickly in, into into that kind of space. And when, you know, can in 24 hours or 48 hours, or whatever it was, can you really have gone through all the evidence um, that you would need if, if it is sort of a bigger, a bigger story? Now, the fact that the uh, New York Times has had a front-page editorial on the issue of gun reform, and it is their first front-page editorial since 1920, well, that made news around the world, and that's obviously a huge deal. But in the current climate in the US where gun control is this huge issue, what type of impact would this front-page editorial, what type of impact do you think it could have, Yasir? Well, I think it's important to bring the conversation into the public and... uh that's what, that's what I mean. it seems from an Australian perspective that the fact that this keeps going on and on and we have to continually hear about these tragic shootings and how easily and accessible both bullets and weapons are semi-automatic and so forth seems from our perspective almost crazy. So you would hope this is a sign into a debate, an honest debate where it's not always caught between the impasse of, you know, it's my right to bear arms against, you know, liberties against safeties and so forth. And I hope from an outsider and, and you know, that, this debate can be had in the same manner. And I think it's a step in a stepping stone towards that when a major institution decides to take that debate and put it on the front page and hopefully, you know, encourage more and more voices to take on what well, I hope, you know, take on, I think, the responsible step and make it more and more difficult to be able to shoot people. You're on Fourth Estate. I'm Jack Fisher, and I'm speaking to Nick Moyer, Yasir Morsi, and Melanie Withnall. Well, the ABC has faced another grilling from the government, this time by Liberal Senator Erica Betts. He criticised the ABC's reporting on the conflict in Israel-Palestine, specifically asking about the personal views of the ABC's Middle East correspondent Sophie McNeil. ABC boss Mark Scott has defended the ABC's Jerusalem-based correspondent, saying that she's under more scrutiny than any other correspondent. Yasir, is this because of the strong views out there on Israel-Palestine? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I almost um, go back to the previous point as well. Look, there are certain conversations that are easy to be had and there are other conversations that are difficult to have. It becomes, and when I think debates such as about Palestine are also framed within broader global politics and sometimes unfortunately shaped between an us and them mentality, Having a, a view that cuts across the mainstream, that is counter to the mainstream, becomes deeply problematic. I mean, I uh, don't believe in uh, being overly objective about something. So I believe in honesty where our position is clearly stated and well argued. And I think talking about Palestine, having a position that adopts and advocates for a solution that's uh, unpopular becomes more and more difficult. And I think these debates about the Middle East are very, very heated and are shaped, um, if you may forgive me for saying so, by long-lasting racism about who deserves liberty and who doesn't and who is a threat and who isn't. 
and to have a conversation like the conversation is also important to reconfigure the, con the coordinates of the debate is important never mind to be taking a position and dealing with the backlash so absolutely to answer your question these debates are always heated and I'm, I personally find it almost impossible I have to always self-police self-censor um, and that's very different from being objective it's being cautious of what you will be labeled what part of your job will be questioned and what and whether or not your professionalism will be brought into disrepute because you are suddenly seen as biased and subjective rather than given an argument. Melanie, even over here in Australia, there are some pretty divided views on the issue of Israel-Palestine. Do you think a reporter in that particular posting can ever really be all things to all people, as the ABC often wants to be? Well, I think um, you know her job really is to report on the story in the most you know balanced way that she can and i think one of the things about the abc and their charter is that they are you know required to seek balance and also are very much trained to remove the personal views and um and not take that with them into the story now of course we know as journalists we can't always do that and that we always do have our um our personal feelings about things but i think saying you criticising her and saying that she can't is actually undermining her as a journalist and her professionalism because, you know, really it's that thing at the ABC where, you know, you do leave your opinions at the door and you're trying to make the call based on the information available to you at the time. So, I mean, no one's going to be perfect at that, but to say that, you know, Sophie McNeil can't do it, I think is, is you know, not appropriate when, you know, we haven't actually seen evidence of her doing that in reporting. He's referring to things that she's said previously. Um, to anything that she's done in this posting. Nick, I'll give you the yeah, last word. I'd like word. to see uh, yep. Betts uh, go and say that uh, in the middle of the Gaza Strip. I mean, she, she's being surrounded by, uh, you know, the sadness of, of, of war uh, every day. Uh, and you just got to... I think if you're annoying everybody, you're probably doing your job right. Yeah. Well, that's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Thanks to my guests, Yasir Morsi, Nick Moyer and Melanie Withnall. Don't forget you can subscribe to the Fourth Estate podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Of course, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook and at 2SER.com. My name's Jack Fisher and you can catch us for our last live episode of the year at the same time next week. Listener.